Of all the students I've known, they were the most renaissance of people 
widely, deeply read, diverse disciplines, and yet prize recruits into very competitive PhD programs in computer electrical engineering. We met as a reading group in the Robotics Institute there. Week by week, we would be reading sociology, theology, philosophy, books about technology sometimes. One day, we were sitting around the table talking things through, and I heard the door over my shoulder open up. Somebody obviously listening in, closed the door, we went on with our conversation. The next week, we met again there and had a visitor come to be with us for the first time. He was a professor from Australia doing a sabbatical at CMU on robotics. After the day's discussion, we came to the end, going back off to our own places. And a little sheepishly said to us, you know, I came looking for you folks last week. I heard there were Christians meeting in the Robotics Institute. But when I opened the door and I heard you discussing technology, I just assumed you weren't the Christians. I can tell you stories like that for hours. But like everyone else, I have 18 minutes. Everything about Q is on purpose. But it's called Q is on purpose. That it's gathering this year in Portland is on purpose. Portland represents something that matters to what Q is all about. That Donald Miller welcomed us here on behalf of Portlandia is on purpose. What he represents, what he means, is integral to the purpose of Q in Portland. To put it starkly, Q doesn't make sense unless Donald is here. And now that we've been welcomed, we're stepping into a day with a conversation about vocation. Why? Simply said, it's on purpose. Understanding vocation rightly means we have to understand we understood Q rightly. Because it means we've understood the purpose of God rightly. We understand that the nexus of faith to vocation to culture. So here's my thesis. Vocation is integral, not incidental, to the mission of God. Vocation is integral, not incidental, to the mission of God. If we get the mission of God right, brothers and sisters, we will understand why vocation is where we begin. If we miss on the mission of the God, we'll miss on the meaning of vocation. And it will be a thousand times in a thousand places one more reason that people assume that PhD students in engineering disciplines, who are also serious Christians, shouldn't be talking about technology. Second, signposts. To get at this, I want to talk with you about signposts and about being signposts. And to do that, we need to remember Walker Percy, the great American novelist and essayist. He was not a romantic for a moment. In fact, the New York reviewers who began to read his work critically finally said, we have our own Camus. We finally have our own Camus because he was somebody who looked wide-eyed at the hurt and the wound and the brokenness and the sorrow and the complexity of the world in which we live. The second coming, the Thanatos syndrome, love in the ruins, on and on, apocalyptic novels, writing about the state of the soul in American life, in the modern, becoming postmodern world. Towards the end of his life, he published a series of essays called Signposts in a Strange Land. I love the title of this, Signposts in a Strange Land. It was not only what Percy himself was about, but I would say in some ways, friends, it's what we're about, to be about signposts in a strange land. So signposts, yes. 
Several years ago, I spent some time in India, traveling through the south of that, that country in the state of Kerala. If you ever have been through there, you have seen, like I've seen, banners over every street marked with sickles and hammers and characteristic memory of the Maoist and the Marxist traditions, which still is being debated in the state of Kerala. I was watching this, thinking about all this. I found myself thinking, so how did the communists get this right? How did they get it right, in fact, that the very ordinary work of human hands, sickles and hammers, somehow is bound up with the very meaning of history? Somehow almost transcended, actually. A marker that, in fact, the things you do with your life in the most ordinary ways, in the most ordinary places, the sickles, the hammers of human experience all over the world, that somehow this is twined together with the very purposes of history. Fundamentally, a lie about the human condition and history. And yet somehow, more than we do, I would say, they got that part right. It's a signpost. Signposts, well, a few weeks before Kerala in India, I was in Beijing. I've been asked to give a lecture at the Beijing Film Academy, which in my mind and my experience was an amazing experience to step into this world where people coming from all over this grand, grand country of China, invited by the government to become the next generation of storytellers through film and cinema. I spoke on good stories and good societies, trying to address, in fact, what I saw their own vocation to be there as undergraduate and graduate students, but also the responsibility they bore for the future of China and in many ways for the rest of the world. Good stories and good societies. I was arguing for, of course, a relationship between the two, but you can't get to be a good society unless you've got good stories at the very heart. But of course, that begs the question, what is good, really? And so I took up an image from Walker Percy himself, an argument that he makes that bad books always lie. They lie most of all about the human condition. Substantively interacting with some of the China's best films, I argue that bad films always lie. They lie most of all about the human condition. You see, these people will be the storytellers for the 21st century in China. And I had a deep sense, really, that in fact the work which they would be doing would be creating signposts for who China is going to be over the next generations and decades. Signposts in a strange land. I have four good stories to tell you, four hard stories. There are more stories about signposts, though. These are the conversations of my life. My friends Jenna Lee Nardella and Todd Guthrie are here this morning. He'll be speaking to you over the next hours. I serve on the boards of both the Bloodwater Mission and the Telos Group. Bloodwater, of course, exists to address the need for clean blood and clean water in Africa. It's very, very, very complicated work, very, very difficult work. It's not work that's done easily, really. Talking to Jenna now, who I've known for most of these years of her 20s, I've come to hear her say, in fact, that one of the hardest parts of the work is that most of the time, Africa doesn't love her back. And so what's she going to keep doing then? How will she keep at this work, which is complex and difficult and yet so very important? When, of course, the very reason she does it in some ways is not responded to with, good job, Jenna. Great. We're so glad you're here. If my friend Jenna does work in Africa, my friend Todd does work in the Middle East, 
telos group exists to address what seems to be an almost intractable problem, really. Just a tremendously difficult question. How is it possible somehow to be for the Palestinians and for the Israelis at the very same time? You see, it's a vision, a work, a message that mostly the church and the world does not want to hear. And so to argue for both at the same time, it's awfully, awfully difficult work. Seemingly intractable, actually. But if those are friends of mine in the NGO world, I've got friends who aren't here today who work in the marketplaces of this life. I wish they were beside me. On this one side, I'd introduce you to Hans Hess, who five years ago decided, in fact, to create a better hamburger. Wouldn't we all like to have one? But the tagline for Elevation Burger is this. Ingredients matter. Ingredients matter. The strangeness of life, theological students from the best seminaries have come into a store at my invitation to talk to them about vocation. They've wondered, where are the Bible verses, Hans? What's Christian about this store, really? Ingredients matter? Why? To whom? For what, really? You see, grass-fed, naturally produced, organically imagined, Hamburgers, but also French fries fried in olive oil, which in fact really makes its way through your stomach much, much better than five guys ever will do in this life. <laughs> My friend Hans thinks ingredients matter. <coughs> and people are buying into this idea all over the country and the world. Five years ago, it was one store in Falls Church, Virginia. Now there are almost 80 franchises sold all over the country. On the other side here is my friend Evan Loomis, who's about 30 years old. He belongs here, too, as well. Evan spent the last several years of his life pouring his heart out, traveling across the country back and forth, trying to find the capital funding to bring it to be what he calls a Whole Foods version of Home Depot. And he has now found a way, a way to do this financially. And it'll start in Austin, Texas this next fall, because that's where the green building phenomena began in America. He wants to create a Whole Foods version of Home Depot, somehow to address not only today and this year, but his children and grandchildren's life, as they live it out in generations beyond him. <coughs> there are people you see who are trying to take this idea that vocation is integral to the work of God in the world and give concrete meaning to it in life. Signposts, each one, they are. And yet, and yet, sometimes our best shots of being signposts miss, don't they? Sometimes we will be misunderstood, even tragically. Have you seen for of gods and men yet? It's at the Art House Theater a few blocks from your plane, so don't miss the program, but you might want to see it if you've not seen it yet. A story set in Algeria in the 1990s of a group of monks living in a monastery who interact deeply, personally, with great, great affection and love and passion with a community of mostly Muslim people around them push and shove of the real politic of this world. As the days pass, their own decisions are more clarified, their own loves become more uh, understood by them. And they decide, in fact, to be a signpost of a responsible love for the world in the midst of a place which, in fact, doesn't really care. It's not a happy story at the end. In fact, though at the same time, it's a story of amazing hope. In some ways, the story makes no sense to us. And it only does if we can see our vocations as signposts and we offer ourselves to the world in hope. Three commitments, three questions for you. So how will we do this? How will we become signposts in a strange land? First of all, we must commit ourselves to a theological imagination that makes sense of who we are 
and how we're to live, especially to understanding the meaning of vocation is integral, not incidental to the Missio Dei. We need theological imagination that's rich and true enough to push back away from every dualism, every effort to privilege the sacred over the secular, the not-for-profit over the prophet, of saving grace over common grace. The paradigm has to change, friends, and we need the theological grist running through the mills of our minds that is able to do that. I have a question for you. If this is our theology, why don't we pray it? Why is it that the communities of Kerala understand that the work of our hand is deeply woven in to the meaning of history? By their manners proclaiming that sickles and hammers matter, that the work of human hands matters to what history is all about. And yet we as Christians don't pray as if that was true. When was the last time that architects and builders, teachers and librarians, doctors and nurses, artists and journalists, lawyers and judges were prayed for in your congregation? We could do that, you know. We need to keep praying for the young life staff and the Wycliffe Bible translators. We need to also pray for the butchers and the bakers and the candlestick makers. Remembering that most of what God is doing in the world is being done in and through the vocations of his people. A second commitment, a second question. We need to commit ourselves to an over-the-shoulder, through-the-heart learning that will grace you for the rest of your life. This kind of apprenticeship in life gives us eyes to see that a coherent life is possible. That it's not written, that it's not written, that cynicism and compartmentalization are the only real possibilities. And so our second question, what are you doing to address the challenges, challenge of the valley of the diapers? The years between 20 and 40 are hard ones, as they are the ones where we sort out who we are and how we will live for the rest of life. What is it that will matter to you? What will we love? And because the stakes are so high, we need teachers who can show us words can become flesh, that worldviews can become ways of life. How we take this up, how we take this up as a community here. A third commitment, a third question. To be a community of folk who would together embody things that matter. Pew gatherings and axiom conversations, communities and congregations of all shapes and sizes, as the good folks at Comment Magazine have put it, to rethink, to research, and to rebuild. If we're gonna be common grace for the common good, we need each other deeply and desperately. We need each other. And so a third question, who and what are you committed to? Every Wednesday morning, I meet with Todd Jethridge and Mark Rogers, neighbors, both of whom are here. It's simple, and sometimes we don't. But we have a standing appointment with each other, trying to work out a common life together. Wendell Berry is right about this, you know. We critically need to belong to a people who work out their vocations in a place. People and place matter. If we're to hold on to our humanness, in fact, if we're to hold on. Hugh, why have we come? We've flown from across the continent to talk, yes, but not just to talk. We all hope that this conversation has consequences. To a person, we are people who long for the world as it ought to be, who long for the world as it someday will be. To a person, we are people who live our lives in, the, in that tension, giving ourselves away to God and history, hoping that the world will somehow be different because our frail lives are in fact woven into the Missio Dei, that our vocations are honestly and deeply integral to the mission of God in the world. 
with Mumford and Sons, we sing, sigh no more, longing to find a love as it ought to be, longing to live and love as we ought to be. Yes, we've come because we see ourselves as implicated in history, and therefore we want this conversation to have consequences. Amen and amen. All right. Um, so, his basic premise is that vocation is integral to the mission of God, that God accomplishes his purpose um, not just with the nonprofit church workers, uh, but with the butchers and the bakers and the candlestick makers. Um, and, and that's sort of at odds with what I'll maybe call like the philanthropy model, which is that we work five days a week so we can give back on Sundays. I recently listened to a podcast about um, the mafia in, in uh, uh, Providence, New Hampshire. It's a place I have to travel for work a lot. And so when I saw this podcast, I thought, that's interesting. So apparently it was a big mafia town and it's sort of coming out of that. But um, there's a, there was a, it was a neighborhood in that town um, where awful things happened. But the people in the neighborhood loved those mafia dons because they paid the heat bill and they um, you know they would they would take care of uh, the widow and the orphan in that town and that's that's sort of the worst of the philanthropy model right I mean make your money however you can so you can take care of, of people um, so I guess maybe we'll start out by just throwing it out there do you all do you all buy into his his premise that vocation is integral, not incidental. That our that our life is a as workers um, is the main event and not just something that allows us to maybe give on Sundays. So respond to that. Maybe give some examples of, of doing singing. Anybody? Yeah. I'll start out real quick. I'll, I'll talk loud. Okay. Good. Uh, the vocation of motherhood. I mean, we're we're thinking vocation as in I went to college and I working for somebody, but many choose the vocation of motherhood, and that's integral. That's probably the prime example of it, yeah. of where you can't do it for five days so that you can party for two days. It's, <coughs> it's, it's part of your life, and, and I think fatherhood can, can be part of that too, but motherhood is a more public example. Yeah, yeah. he talks about the valley of the diapers, which I think is, I've never heard that before. That was <laughs> funny to me, and when we were listening to this, uh, when, when uh, he talked about the blood water mission, even when Africa doesn't let us back, Jessica whispered to me, homeschooling. Because <laughs> we, <laughs> Jessica's a, a homeschool mom. And, uh, it's, it can be a thankless job, but it's a worthy, we, we find it worthy and, uh, you know, integral to our mission. Anybody else? So motherhood's a great one. I thought. For, for years, I've always felt like I'm mama's body. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you tell the friends. Wow. <laughs> so, I, for years, I've recognized in the medical field that that's been a mission. I've always felt like it, it's a mission. But to live it out, I have to remind myself daily because, you know, we can all look at our job as a mission when it's going right. And I'm guilty of this as well. You know, when the schedule's overbooked, or so-and-so's on vacation, I have to cover their patients, or, um, you know, the 
scheduling go off or the hospital administration doesn't understand or you know and you, I start complaining about it. I start complaining about it. <coughs> I know that I need to write more, do more, you know, whatever. But I mean, it's easy for me to say it's a mission, and it kind of coincides pretty well with the medical field. But is it? When I start complaining about it, is it? Does it bother you? Is it? Well, and I think too, you know, I I would assume I was in um, before I had children and started staying home with our kids, I was in mental health care. And I often thought of my mission to our patients, but I often didn't think about the fact that I had a mission with my coworkers too, because what became difficult was the workload and the difficult coworkers. And you know, that's kind of what you're speaking to is um, even in those moments where we're not thinking about who are we serving, we're still serving the people that we're doing it with if we're treating them like Christ would treat them no matter how they're acting, you know. And so it it's so late. It's, there's a lot of layers to how our vocation is part of our ministry because it's not just who we're reaching out to. I believe that the, the separation that we experience today between work and, and spiritual and family and other parts of our lives is a it's a fairly modern invention. I grew up on a farm, and of course, we used to be an agrarian society, and the animals do not understand they can buy. <laughs> it is a 24 7 lifestyle. And uh, to me, it's kind of sad that we view work today, <clears throat> that part of our life, as a negative and, and do not see it as an integrated whole with our, our spiritual walk, with our family walk with the rest of, of life and I, I, I think his message is important to get back to that yeah yeah he, he says at the end there the, the compartmentalization and cynicism aren't the, aren't the way um, and I think the, the modern work world this sort of this factory model of working it's been applied to everything right I mean I think this I think when people left the farms and went to the factories is when you had this whistle to whistle um approach to work and I think we no matter even doctors or even professionals that are you know that I think still I, I think it's just crept into everything where you we, we kind of work whistle to whistle and maybe think about the things that are outside of that as not work uh, and I think we've lost that when we left the farm. A great book that addresses that is um, Practicing the Presence of God and um, Brother Lawrence right and he talks about in his um, service to the church how he was really able to commune with God and get to know God um, on a much deeper level when he thought of everything he did was a service. And so he was praying while he was washing dishes, and um, it became his. That became what made him a standout in the in his church family, and people would seek seek his wisdom because it it was in all of his moments of, of his life, but. Um, I grew up as a modernist okay so my thinking was very linear and I also grew up as a PK <laughs> okay so faith and vocation were one and the same okay um, when I was really challenged <coughs> with what to do with vocation and so forth 
I went to college to get an MRS degree, and I graduated without one. And I was really upset. I was like, I didn't come to college to work. <laughs> but um, I was trained uh, to be an interior designer. And so when I went into interior design, I had a lot of conflict between faith and practice because I felt like it was so materialistic. Um, fast forward many, many years. Randy and I moved to um, Pepperdine. And while he was pursuing his doctorate at the University of Southern California, I was doing interior design for Pepperdine. And he was, do, um, he was teaching part-time at Pepperdine. And um, it was a little bit easier for me to get faith and practice closer together, but I still struggled with it. And I did that for seven years at Pepperdine until there was an opportunity for me to become a campus minister. So during that time, I got my master's in ministry to really work out some of these things. But I was disillusioned when we moved to Nashville in 97 that there were, there were no opportunities for me as a female to be a minister anymore, to be recognized as a minister. So my ministry really became designing hospitals and healthcare facilities while I was at Earl Swenson Associates. And I still struggle with that until uh, the Zoe group went to Fresno. And I met a doctor there who was doing this amazing work in neurology with children. And they had just built a new children's hospital. And I expressed some interest. And he was like, oh, please, let me show you. He took me to the hospital, and he walked these, wall, these corridors and... He helped me understand that what I was doing was creating environments for Jesus to heal people. And it redeemed that faith and practice for me as being honorable. And at that point, I was exposed to postmodern thought. And instead of being uh, interior design on one end and Christian on the other, it became linked for me in a circle that I was connected to God, the creator and that his role for me was to be a co-creator and that that was honorable that was working out my faith and um, I'm, I'm always grateful to that doctor for redeeming that for me so, so that my vocation is not incidental it is I would hope that we raise our children in a different environment than you grew up in because I think that's probably an environmental thing. I grew up in that environment too where you're doing God's work when you go on a mission trip. Um, and I, I hope that we are raising a different generation <coughs> that when you paint, you're bringing attention to God because beauty shows God's creativity or when you're, you're building something that's housing people or treating people that you're bringing glory to God that we're I would love for us to make that a point of our training of our kids so we're, they're not raising up with this baggage, you know? Um, when I saw the topic, the, the first thing that came to my mind is if your first question 
is what is my purpose and the answer to that question is to glorify God period you know like regardless of if you're talking about hanging out with a friend or what job you're doing or how you do your job I think that that could really help a lot with working this stuff out it's just like my purpose is to glorify God yeah, and then you weave that through everything you do. I think that's right. And I, um, I, I love that example of Deja. Yes. I love I love your example about designing hospitals, and uh, it, it makes me think of the hamburger restaurant where you know they, they were plastering scriptures all over the walls of the hamburger restaurants, and they said we wish the scriptures on there. Um, you know, I assume you probably weren't. You know, painting murals of Moses on the walls of the hospitals, but you're building a place of hospitality and a place of healing and a place of peace and tranquility and comfort, and um, and that is God's work too, right? That's um, that's telling those true stories, like the Chinese filmmakers. That's his prayer for the Chinese filmmakers that they would tell stories that are affirmative of life, that that are true, even though we all. I would assume that those Chinese filmmakers aren't going to be making the Jesus film over and over again. Um, are there some jobs, uh, and I used the mafia before, so yeah, there's, there's the low-hanging fruit, but are, are there some jobs that are mainstream that are maybe harder to view as a vocation uh, than others? You know, we, we talked about practicing medicine. That's, a, that's one that, from the outside looking in, seems to me to be easy. It's a layup, yeah. Of course, that that's healing people. Not that specifically, but just sometimes in large corporate America, there may be corporate initiatives that don't line up with your own personal values. I'm seeing that right now, where for our organization, June is the LGBT month, and, and we're expected to not just support it, embrace it, go to the parades, say, uh, call people out and say, look, look at this. What they what they're doing and, and it just becomes an interesting balance to say you can love them clearly but do I want to side where the perception is I am heavily pro that and by the way we're not going to celebrate heterosexuals we're, we're just going to celebrate this one so that becomes an interesting challenge with your faith seven male books do it's not just corporate America I've worked for the government since 1991 and the transition from from homogeneous to identifying these groups for these initiatives or these ideas and promoting them. So it, it's out there also. And and it's um, our Freedom Center Air Force officer, and you're expected not just to, it's not a nine-to-five job, you're expected to live and embrace and be part of all of that. So when the government decides it's going to embrace LGBT, which it does, uh, it's, it's very difficult. It's very challenging. Yeah. It was interesting to me when I was living in Austin to think about, I'm a certain God's a Christian really can't do because that wasn't something I'd ever considered. And a friend of mine who just graduated with his PhD in chemistry from Harvard interviewed for Raytheon to manufacture weapons. And he ultimately decided this is not something that I can do as a Christian. And he turned down a really big salary um, just thinking, I, I can't be a part of contributing to destruction, even though, you know, I, I, maybe someone else could have taken that 
not sure if I buy his thesis. What's that? I'm, I'm not sure if I buy his thesis. Um, I would, because he did not define the mission of God, and I'm a definitions person, we're trained to think that way, right? Yep. Um, I buy the idea that God may accomplish his purposes through all vocations, but I have this overriding belief as a Christian in free choice and free will. And I think we're hearing examples of people say, I'm not sure I can accomplish the mission of God through my vocation, although I can accomplish the mission of God through my relationships with my coworkers. So I think we need to have a good definition if I want to buy his thesis of what is the mission of God. St. Francis of Assisi prayed that we would all be instruments of peace. Well, it may not be through our job title that we are instruments of peace, right? But it might be through our relationships that we are. In which case, I don't think we need to even say vocation is integral. It's just our mission of who we are, the fabric that we are woven with, that when we attach ourselves to society, we are to bring that part of God into all of our relationships. And that permeates everything we do, not just our job title. I'm reminded of a story that Lee Camp has told in some of his classes since we're talking about vacation. I believe it was Martin Luther, but I'm not a Bible professor, so that, that may just be my recollection of being wrong. Martin Luther talking about Christians and vocation and how they should decide what to do um, and talking about if you're the executioner, then you don't follow the Sermon on the Mount, you follow the executioner's manual. Um, and I think that kind of infects our thinking on this. So I think going to that, are there jobs that Christians can't do? Um, I think simply, if your job seems to be more destructive towards human flourishing, um, there are several things that come to mind, private prisons come to mind, where it's profiting off human misery um, but there are other things weapon systems, different things where it's like this is just entirely destructive um, to, to humanity because, because our, our Christian worldview, the mission of God is restoring the whole world, it's not restoring America, it's not restoring law and order, it's restoring the whole world um, so I think we do have to consider that because I think would think most of us would say, you know what, if, if I'm the guy that works the guillotine and I kill people, that there's no way that that can be Christian. But maybe people want to think that. Yeah. Walter. I, I find your, your question is terribly important. And I find it really interesting how we haven't answered it. Mm -hmm. I think we've answered kind of like the Supreme Court defined pornography. I know when I see it, but we haven't seen it in our answers quite yet. And I'll, But I think our answers are important as well. So don't hear me disrespecting your answers. Um, and now you're going to answer the question. <laughs> Here's the reason why I think it's really important. And please hear me out on this. I have found it terribly interesting in a lot of the context I find myself in in a church and in a Christian university that the vocation that gets a standing ovation whenever it's mentioned are those who serve in the military and yet the question you 
life, missionaries, teachers, teachers in low-income parts of our community who intentionally go in, who, who don't get those standing ovations. Don't hear me trying to take anything away from the military. I'm just trying to say, I think this is why this question is so important, is that we do have to define, perhaps, have eyes that look up and see people serving the mission of God in unique ways and applaud God's work through them. Let me just one more in the back. Let me say something about that and then we'll take it back. I, I think it's also problematic and maybe new that we privatize those those lines. And, and here's what I mean. we've individualized those lines. So and maybe here's me about to do that. I, I, I'm unwilling to say what Scott thinks are those, except for the mafia, maybe the guillotine operator, uh, what are those professions that Christians just can't do um, and versus the ones that I think are just you know solidly uh, comfortable Christian territory. Um, and I think we've left that to the individual as opposed to talking about that. I, there's not a consensus, uh, probably, or, or at least we don't talk about it. We don't, I've never heard a sermon about, you know, here are the jobs Christians just can't do. Um, and I think maybe those are things we ought to, to talk about in community. If, you know, if, if our company, and my, my company certainly has things that I'm uncomfortable with, um, a lot of things that I love and I, I believe in the mission of, but there are corners of it where I'm like, Man, I don't know if I can get on board with that. And I think those are conversations we need to have with uh, with our Christian community um, so that we can then go back into our vocation and, and live it out. Just real quick, I don't have um, an answer, but a question. Um, and it would be really neat to look at, you know, look through scripture at, at what people did for a living you talk about the tax collector or the centurion or the prostitute, whatever it may be. Um, and I think it does come back to what God uses in those relationships, where we find ourselves doing whatever it is that we're doing um, as we relate to others, uh, because it does come back to love. So it's more of a question, not a, uh, an answer. And, um, and then it gets into the whole idea of judging others and judging yourself about what you're doing. <coughs> Is this okay to do? Is this not okay to do? I don't think we worry too much about that. I think we're more worried about what you're doing with that than, than where you find yourself. In the field of medicine, I can tell you all the wrong things um, about that field, but people do look at it honorable at times, but there's a lot of things that are not honorable about it, and I know that field <coughs> very well. But the question, again, I think comes back to what are we doing with where we are in the relationships that we have? So the question in the room is, what is the mission of God? And so, and that we need to understand that in order to know if we're living out that mission in our vocation. Um, and that's a hard, um, I don't know if we're going to be able to find that answer. Scott, I think you've got the last comment. I was just going to say, just, you know, words matter. That was in the sermon today. <clears throat> and the very nature of the word vocation is calling. And I think in America, uh, we have had the freedom of choosing who and what we want to be. And the question to me, and part of finding the answer is, am I listening to 
how God has made me and what is he calling me into? How does he want me to spend my life? Uh, and so, you know, it's easy as a college student to be saying, I want to seek God's will. I want to hear his voice. I want him leading me where the next step should be. Maybe it's not so easy in your 50s as I've, I've invested so much. But I think it starts with us saying, not just what is your mission, but how are you inviting me into it where I am today? And it might cause us to move into another direction. But that, that vital sense of, of I'm walking somewhere with God and he's inviting me, I think that's the beginning of fruitful living. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great point. Yeah. Um, thank you all for being here today. Next week, uh, the video is on advancing the common good. I cannot remember who the key speaker is on that. And then the week after that, the Colsons are going to be with us in class. They're going to be, um, I think, showing, uh, maybe showing a video about making the streets and then leading a discussion on that. So. Thanks, everybody.